You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Josh Richardson, an instructor of international relations and a member of the SOUP staff. Josh, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks, Tim. Good to be here. We ask everybody, how'd you wind up in the Army? So uh, I came to the Army through the game of basketball. Uh, I'm a grad of West Point. Um, and as a high schooler, I wanted to play college basketball. And I got a little bit of interest from this place called West Point, so I started to apply. And uh, as, I, uh, as I get ready to retire now, as I look back, uh, it really doesn't matter that I didn't play a whole lot of basketball here. I did. But uh, the game brought me here, which brought me to the Army, and it's been a great ride. So where did you grow up, and did you come from an Army background? I grew up in a small town in North Carolina, a rural town called Madison, north of the city of Greensboro. Um, and I did not come from military background, traditional. My father was a, is now retired, and as I was growing up, he was in the North Carolina National Guard, something mm-hmm. he's proud of, I'm proud of, but not, uh, not the active-duty military move around the world. Kind okay. of when you graduated from West Point, what was your pipeline? So first thing, I was, a, I was actually a grad assistant coach, we called it back then, an athletic intern. So six months here uh, with the Army basketball program coaching, and then uh, straight out to what we called OBC then, we call Bolick now, to Fort Sill. Uh, field artillery, commission in the field artillery, so I went to Fort Sill for six months to learn my trade, and then out to the force. First unit was 1st Armored Division, Fort Riley, Kansas. So 1st Armored Division, heavy, tanks, yep. mechanized. What was that like as a young lieutenant? Um, well, it was great. I learned a lot about the art of fire support there and about the Army in general. I kind of um, didn't, didn't know much of anything showing up to my first unit. And so I learned about a little bit how the Army works, met some great officers and NCOs. Um, but principal to my, the rest of my career is I learned the art of fire support. And, um, and even though I had, after I graduated from West Point, um, I decided that I was going to go to Ranger School and try that out. And I had a mindset shift from my time as a cadet, honestly. I was ready to go light. I wanted to go. I tried to get out of the assignment to Fort Riley and get assigned to Fort Bragg or somewhere like that, somewhere that I thought was a little more high speed, and I was summarily told no. Um, so I showed up at Fort Riley and made the most of it, but that's the way it was supposed to be for me because I met some great leaders there that set me on the course 
to, you know, if I hadn't gone to Fort Riley, I would have never made it to Second Ranger Battalion. Just like a lot of careers go, um, it's the, you know, as they look backwards at it. But uh, so Fort Riley was great. We had a lot of fun. I learned a lot about the Army. Mm-hmm. Without getting too far into nerdy artillery talk between two artillery officers here, what was your initial assignment? You mentioned fire support, but for the for the listener who doesn't understand the kind of the breakdown in artillery world, what was your initial assignment okay. at Fort Riley? So my first job in the Army was a company fire support officer. And, and what's that, your role there? Yeah, so when you're that, um, you are the infantry company, in my case, the maneuver, and my company was infantry. You're that commander's um, expert for fire support. And, the, and, and to, to break out that term fire support, uh, we set the conditions for the maneuver to succeed. So you get paired up with uh, an officer that's been in the Army eight or ten years commanding an infantry company, um, and you are allowed slash forced to earn your to earn a reputation there as somebody who's competent. Um, the key, I think, the, I loved fire support. I did it again uh, when, I, when we went to Fort Lewis. But the great thing about fire support is you have a chance to be involved in the planning of the company operation from its inception. So as a fire support officer, as a second lieutenant first day in the operational army, you're going with that company commander to the battalion op order. So you're starting to consume mission-type orders at the battalion level on your first day, where your peer platoon leader, infantry platoon leaders, wait for the company order, but you're shaping it. Um, if you do it right and if you have a company commander that will listen. And I was very fortunate to have a company commander that used me, uh, allowed me to be a part of the process. So I learned a lot. How long were you at Fort Riley? Uh, Fort Riley got there in November of 01, and and then I left in uh, February of 03. So not even a year and a half. So you were at Fort Sill when 9-11 happened? I was in Ranger School when 9-11 happened. I'd finished, went to Ranger School after OBC, and I was in a mountain phase of Ranger School on 9-11. What was that experience like, hearing about 9-11 while it, in the mountains? Well, it was pretty surreal. Uh, honestly, the way that we found out, no kidding, was we passed it up a Ranger file like it was a, like it was a water status report. Um, the RIs heard about it on their radios, and they let the, the student chain of command know that a plane had flown into the World Trade Center. So we got that report. And when you're low on sleep, um, it's just kind of confusing. It's fuzzy in your head. But we we got the feeling that something real, something was happening out in the real world that was very important. And then that night, they came in with trucks and white lights and put us in an admin pause and gave us a full uh, information brief about what our nation had undergone. So, And then you're surrounded by warriors. So everybody gets really antsy to get out of ranger school and get back to their unit so they can go. Um, and then the RIs would tell them, calm down. We're in touch with your units. Stay in school. You're not going to miss anything. So there's, there's all of that uh, anticipation ensues. But, of course, my career had changed mm-hmm. fundamentally on that day. In First Armor, did you wind up deploying? And we did. We did. It wasn't a combat deployment. It was an operational deployment to Kuwait for six months. Um, from spring of o- spring to fall of 2 we went up into um, the into the camps, the cabals in Kuwait, that uh, was part of a presence mission there called Operation Desert Spring, uh, where, where units would rotate through that portion of Kuwait uh, for six months at a time. And we did that, uh, and I learned a ton there. We, we just did, we did, we did maneuver in the desert with me- mechanized maneuver in the desert, uh, and then came back home. So it was a deployment, but not a combat one. 
while that deployment's going on, though, the drums of war are starting to beat louder and louder against Iraq here yeah. in the United States. How did that influence training or your role as a fire support officer or as a lieutenant? I think I was aware of that, um, that geopolitical um, discussion, but it didn't influence. Well, I'm sure it influenced it. We, we were training for war anyway. We would have been anyway. Um, the fact of the matter is, to your question, Tim, uh, the, the unit that came into that space after us never left. They, were, they did their desert spring rotation and were told they weren't going home to stay there and that the, the rest of their kit would meet them. And they stayed in that camp and deployed out of that camp on Operation Iraqi Freedom. So it was that close in space and time. Um, so I think that you know the, the way of war in a desert, and this being armored and mechanized infantry way of war, we were, just, we were practicing it. It was a show of force since 1991. But it was also um, a new on the doorstep of, of, a, of another push into Iraq. You leave in the fall, in November of 2002. Yep. Four months later, we invade Iraq. Where were you for that? So in between the two, my first daughter was born, and I did an NTC rotation with 1st Armored Division. They were, they were on the, the, the standard rotation of going to NTC, and my unit did that NTC rotation and then went and came back to Fort Riley and, and put on put stuff on railheads to go to war. Right before that NTC rotation, I was recruited. I had I had um, applied to go into the range regiment, made clear to my chain of command that's what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't know if it was going to work out timing-wise, but I did get a date to go to the um, orientation. They called it ROPE back then, the Ranger Orientation Program. Um, and it turns out it was on the backside of that NTC rotation. So... What I did is I did the rotation with my team, and I left that motor pool. I never looked back at another mechanized unit in my whole career. <laughs> it's kind of poetic, but I was tired of being stuck in the bottom of a 113 fighting fire support, and I was excited about it. So what I did is after that, I went to Fort Benning, and I assessed and was selected to join the Ranger Regiment, um, and that was in February. And I went back, and we moved the family, and uh, later in February, I got to uh, – Got to Fort Riley in see the, probably the first few days of March, as the war is kicking off. I said Fort Riley. Got we got from Fort Riley to Fort Lewis, um, and portions of my company were already gone. Uh, forward deployed, the battalion deployed from Fort Lewis in pieces and packages into RR Saudi Arabia, um, and which is an uh, old old airfield on the border Saudi Iraqi border. Um, some of the company was already there when I got there. I met my company commander. He was leaving very soon. And then um, I called a reachback bird uh, about a week later. House, household goods still in boxes in the place we rented in Lacey, Washington. I uh, left my wife and baby daughter there and, and moved and met the company in, uh, in Saudi Arabia in late March. Emotionally, that must have been kind of a a bunch of changes all at once, a lot of stressful changes. Yeah. What was going through your head as either you're getting onto the bird to go to Kuwait or yeah. upon arrival? I was just excited. I knew this was I knew this was an exciting time. I was going to get a chance to do my job in a very important way. So I had that, uh, I probably had what you might characterize as that young soldier, soldier's excitement to go experience combat because that's where I was headed. Um, and it's not that I wasn't thoughtful about leaving my wife and my daughter. I was, but it was it was what I had prepared to do, and I was excited to go do it. What was the mission of the Second Ranger Battalion at the time? 
So Second Ranger Battalion was organized under what's been referred to as Task Force 20. And the mission profile that we operated with other units in Special Operations Command was um, WMD-focused as well as high-value target-focused. Uh, so we were um, we were taking we we were connected through uh, the um, through the national intelligence architecture and the way that Joint Special Operations Command is organized um, to fulfill specific missions focused on WMD or high value targets. When was the first time you crossed into Iraq? So the first time we went in, I went into Iraq was um, probably the last day of March. Um, we did uh, my company Bravo Company two seven five was cross-organized over to 1st Ranger Battalion for Operation Restore Freedom, the Jessica Lynch uh, POW Rescue. Um, and we flew in the day before into Talil Air Base in uh, southern, the southern part of Iraq to meet with the other operational units that were going to conduct that raid. And we did a hasty planning session there and rehearsed. And then the night of April the 1st is when we conducted that operation. That was my first time into Iraq and my first uh, operation. What was going through your head as you're getting ready to board those helicopters? Well, that's a pretty that's a pretty heady moment. Um, I remember very clearly feeling fortunate to be a part of it, being you're very keyed up because we did not know what we were going to meet in the city of Nazaria. The intelligence reports were that there were thousands of Fedayeen military and they're ready to fight uh, our forces. As it turns out, as we know, it, they did not, which is great. Um, we took some we took some sporadic fire on the way in, but but those forces those un, those forces that were not in that weren't going to be in uniform anyway, largely laid down their weapons and blended into the city that night as we went in to conduct our mission. Um, but you don't know what you're going to meet, so you're 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 anxious about that, but also a feeling um, that you're on a very important mission. There's an American that's been isolated on the battlefield. Um, she's been captured. We've got some help knowing where she is, and we need to go get her. So that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty weighty feeling. And uh, and the other bit there is joining a unit like Second Ranger Battalion and Bravo Company Second Ranger Battalion. There were there were NCOs especially enlisted men and NCOs that have been in that formation for years that have been waiting that have been training to do a mission like this. And now I was going to join them, and we were going to go to a POW raid, um, and they were very anxious for that. But as sort of the new guy, and I think even offhandedly, the guy, some of the guys said that to me in a very good-natured way. But they're like, "We've been working on this for years, and you just showed up." It's kind of like, "Okay, well, I got to step up. I got to, you know." And I did, and we did. We worked as a team, but that was those were those things blended together and uh, made me feel a very. Uh, I was proud to be a part of it. Uh, I was ready. And I was anxious to make sure I did my job right. Mm -hmm. After the rescue in Anazaria, yeah, the invasion continues. Did you wind up in Baghdad with the rest of the kind of big army? We did. Um, so we went back directly from Nazaria. We we flew, we exfilled back to Saudi Arabia, um, and waited for um, waited for the phase of the battle to unfold around Baghdad International Airport. The the unit that I was with had plans, had rehearsed plans to jump onto Baghdad International Airport to do a, a parachute assault, because that's what the Ranger Regiment is organized to do. Um, and um, as it turns out, that wasn't necessary, and that would have been very costly, although we were ready to do it. 
So we weren't sure if that was going to happen. Um, so we, we waited for we waited to watch the progress of the war as it moved north. And as it turns out, I think it was April the 6th when we landed in, uh, in Baghdad. We took helicopters from Saudi Arabia into, into Baghdad Airport. It had been secured. The 3rd Infantry Division and associated units had moved into Baghdad, and the airport itself was securing us for us to come in and set up a base of operations. So it was around April 6th, as I, as I remember. You're there, it's April. Most of the heavy fighting between organized Iraqi resistance and the, and the U.S. and coalition forces has ended. Yes. What role did the Ranger Regiment now start to play in your battalion? Yeah, you're exactly right, Tim. And that's what we experienced. And we, we went out on almost nightly raids, and what we were doing is we were going to kill or capture high-value targets. So what was referred to then as the deck of cards, Saddam and his upper echelon. So we're talking about Iraqi, largely Iraqi high-value targets, um, in order to in order to put together the the strat the overall strategy for the for the war during that phase. So it wasn't we weren't organized we weren't fighting organized units. We were conducting precision raids, usually as part of a joint task force with another high-tiered unit. Mm-hmm. We would work all night and sleep all day. We've interviewed other folks who, who did the, the invasion and then yeah. had the deck of cards reference. Did you actually see a deck of cards? No, I only saw a piece of paper with the likeness of a deck of cards. I haven't seen it as a deck of playing cards. <laughs> All right, that, that's consistent with the stories we've got yeah. elsewhere. Um, how long did these raids continue? So this deployment that I was on, we redeployed, as I remember, in late June. Um, and that was the mode and method of this deployment, is how we were organized is we were working with we were working with different uh, parts of the intelligence community closely, and they were working they were working on receiving the intelligence that needed it could be turned into mission type information for units like us to go after these people. So it's not we didn't go out every single night, but most nights we would most days we would like I said we would rest in the morning and we would get up and and we would receive. We receive a target and a location, and we would put together a planning package and rehearse it and go out that night. Um, And we were also exploring what it felt like we were exploring. As Again, I was a new guy, but it felt like we were really breaking some ground on what sensitive site exploitation was. Um, So we would conduct raids, often dry holes, as most people that have done this would tell you. Um, Some nights we would get who we were after, but a lot of times that person wasn't there. But then it was—it's what we would learn there, and we would go—we would do subsequent movements in the same night, um, trying to uh, trying to have the same effect. The company fire support officer has a variety of roles, especially if you're not actively calling in artillery. Were right. you leading some of that sensitive site exploitation? Has it been done in in other units? Um, at this time, no. Uh, what I was doing was. Um, I was fortunate enough, since I was with a special operations unit, I would have access to fixed-wing and rotor-wing assets every night. Uh, and what we would often use those for, even if they weren't shooting anything, was, was real-time target intel on approach. So I would be talking to an AC-130 or a Little Bird, and I would give them, and we got, to, we got good at laying out our now specific observation requests during the rock drills. But like looking at this building number, what do you see? So we would know a lot. Um, what can also be done by UAVs, uh, which we were using at the time, but not as ubiquitous as they became, um, and also certainly not on the to on the handset with me right next to the ground force commander. So we would develop the picture of the target en route. 
which which I felt like was important. I think is important, even if we're not shooting anything. Um, and then on the objective, we would continue. We were the assets that I did that I worked uh, directly that I controlled, if you will, and my Ford observers controlled. Those assets were critical in um, in isolating the objective. So you may have heard folks and know yourself of these are referred to as squirters, squirter control. So you hit a target and you don't want anything to come in and out until you're done because the person you're after might just be that thing that ran away. So those assets watch for that. And they would report through um, as a, through the fire support uh, folks on the ground, whatever everything they saw. So we had eyes out. So that was largely my work on the objective. If we weren't in a lethal situation was, and we weren't doing terminal control was building situational awareness um, of movement in and around the objective, if that makes sense. Was your entire deployment from then on small unit raids, precision targeting against high value targets, or did, were there other operations? Um, largely. We did go, we had a, we had a mission that went, uh, we were, we did, as I mentioned earlier, part of our mission profile was WMD focused. And we, we did, we did move out into some different areas in order to try to confirm presence of WMD material, which as you'll remember, was a big thing that the nation was trying to question the nation was trying to answer. So some of that was a little bit more area focused than in, in specific target focused. Um, one of the more, one of the really interesting to sort of I'll come back to your question, but one of the interesting raids that we did is I was a part of the raid that captured Abu Abbas, the Palestinian terrorist that that killed the American, uh, pushed the American off, that the part of the group that um, hijacked the Achille Lauro um, cruise ship in the Mediterranean and was responsible for killing, pushing a, a, um, a handicapped American uh, overboard uh, to his death. Um, and he had been a wanted man for years. This was in the 1980s. And he was in Baghdad in 2003. And we never quit looking for him. That's what I learned. Not, not, not that, but as, as a young, as a, we were taking the intel brief for this mission, I remember that gripping me. So we never, we never forgot about this guy that needed to be brought to justice. And I was part of a raid that just went to where he was staying um, and captured him. We didn't have to kill him. We captured him and exploited his position and brought him to justice. Um, so that um, is largely connected to the mission-type profile that we were discussing. Um, really, the only other exception uh, to the point that we might get onto here is other than a specific uh, individual, which was usually embedded in an urban area where we had to be more surgical, we did, um, we did a mission on June the 11th in western Iraq that was in the desert. It was a, a camp that was down in a wadi in a canyon uh, type of terrain feature, and it was a camp of foreign fighters, as it that had come in through Syria, come in from Syria, uh, into Iraq, in near the town of Rawa in western Iraq, and um, they were foreign fighters, and they were there for one reason: they were there to split up. And there was about eighty, we don't eighty to one hundred fighters in this camp, in this down in this depressed in this desert camp. Um, there was nothing else around it. There was no there was no civilian areas around it. Um, and, and when we got, when Fifth Corps, as it was, and the elements in country got sight of it, we watched it on Predator for a little bit. And it was, uh, it's almost, I've thought about it, it's almost like watching the, the, the classic Al-Qaeda video where you see folks that are trying to do PT formation. I mean, they would, they were there for a reason. They were there to form up and, um, 
And as it turns out, as the, the intelligence reports, they were, they were there to break up into two- and three-man teams and move out and kill coalition soldiers um, as a beginning of, uh, if, it, if it was, the beginnings of what we would face for another decade in Iraq. We didn't know it yet. Um, something I mentioned a minute ago, Tim, is, you know, a lot of times on the ground to and from these raids we were doing every night, and in the, especially in the earliest days in Baghdad, we were greeted as liberators. You know, people cheered for us. We threw MREs out to kids. There were there was that sense of thank you for being here. Um, well, the the mission in reflection, the mission on June 11th was um, was was a, a successful raid, um, but it was against a target that is indicative of what happens after the thank you, after the, after being greeted as liberators. And we all know how that story ended, but looking back at the time, all we knew was that it was an all-military target. And it was, and it, the way that it was arranged on the earth allowed us to do a, to do the most violent uh, raid, the most, um, you know, calculated and violent raid possible to have the, the biggest effect possible, and we did. But what I didn't appreciate at the time was is that was indicative of where this war was going. Foreign fighters were coming in, um, and uh, and it would get ugly. Yeah. You mentioned when we were talking about your time in First Armor that as a lieutenant, you're in the battalion-level briefs doing fire support planning. Right. When you were in the battalion-level brief talking about this raid, mm. what was going through your head? Because this is a significant change from go out and grab the guy from the Achille Loro right. to go out and wipe out a camp. Yeah. What was going through my head is I was hoping we would get the mission. Just like most anybody in my position, we had been, we've been doing important things um, and we were taking risks every night and you begin to get the feeling that it's more and more risky, you know, the longer we do this. And then when you see a target like this, what you want to do is you want to have that mission so that you can remove that threat. Um, and I don't want, I don't intend for that to sound macho or anything, but it's just when you get it, when you're working with a team, that's the best at what they do. Um, and that is what a ranger company does. Um, we had been operating very surgically, but this mission out in the desert in the Wadi is, is what rangers exist to do. So when you get, when that comes across as a possibility, um, you get, you, you hope you get a chance because you think it's important. Um, so those were the first thoughts. And uh, initially, this mission was, we saw it. We were, I went into the operations center with my company commander, and we were briefed about it. Um, and we, we began to put a plan together. But we were told that uh, we're just watching it right now. So we weren't like, here's the thing, go do it. Um, and that was probably only a day before we actually went in to full mission planning. But we looked at it, and my company commander put together, he, he sketched out a maneuver plan. And this is the thing that's so rewarding about being a fire support officer that I mentioned. We get this together, and we just sit at the desk together and we'll work it out. And I need to see how he wants to fight the maneuver before I can figure out how to design the fires. Um, but likewise, the first move in this fight was fires, pre-assault fires. So I'm des I designed that. And we begin to understand the geometries at H hour because fires continue, but now we've got, we've got rangers on the ground. So anyway, we begin to sketch that out that first night, but we don't think we're going to get the mission. We're told they're probably going to send, I think, the 101st in. They probably would have sent a battalion plus in on this thing from the 101st. And so we, we think on it, uh, and then we, we 
put it aside probably. And again, for me, and I think other Rangers would, would share that we were, we were hoping we would get it. We wanted it, but we, we were told that, you know, it's just something we were watching that day. Yeah. You talked about building a fire support plan and the preparatory mm-hmm. fires. Looking at the, you know, looking at the maps that you've shown me here in these mm-hmm. in this article, this camp's in a wadi. Yeah. You know, when you're planning this, are you thinking in the back of your head, I bring in a couple of aircraft and I drop a few thousand pounds of ordnance and we solve this problem without having to put rangers on the ground? Um, I don't know that I ever, th- I think I thought we needed to get on the ground. And uh, not to get to lessons, but we, what proved out is that you can't do this with just bombs. But um, I remember early on in the planning, uh, if you wanted to, if you wanted to exploit fully what was in those tents and in the structures in that wadi, you don't want to drop six 2,000-pound bombs on it, which is what we ended up doing. Um, we thought about A-10 gun runs as the most lethal pre-assault fires. Thankfully, we didn't go with that because we had plenty of a fight on our hands um, after six of our biggest bombs that were, and we ended up working as we put that together and we decided to go that way. Um, Of course, I make that kind of recommendation, but I don't get to make that kind of decision. Um, The company commander and the battalion leadership uh, did decide to go, we did decide to go with bombs as our, at the, as the first, um, as the first as the opening salvo of the pre-assault fires. Then we went to working on just what you said, and so we're in a depressed area. What kind of fuse are we going to use? How are we going to get the best grid? We went to mens- we were mensurating grids and making sure that we had the right data to order up to the Air Force. And we, we had, um, normally you would want to be four days out in the ATO process, but we, with a mission this high profile, as soon as we ordered it up, we were able to develop that package that we wanted. Um, which did, as I said, not to get too far ahead, but did include um, two F-16s coming in with three and dropping a total of six uh, 2,000-pound bombs on the different objectives inside that wadi. So you're based in Baghdad. Yeah. Rawa is not exactly next door. Right. What was the scheme of maneuver to get that Ranger company out there? So what we developed was, and this was um, this was not unheard of, we had done some things at reach, but we developed a... Um, a combination ground assault and helo assault force. Um, two platoons would fly in with uh, Task Force 160th helicopters, and one platoon would conduct a ground assault um, convoy and and get into the area, and then and then uh, comprise a ground assault force that would arrive simultaneous with the helo assault force at each hour on the uh, on the objective. From a fire support planner's perspective, were you also responsible of planning the ground maneuvers? No. Fire support plan as they were advancing through? or um, What we did is, uh, as best I can remember, well, that would have been that platoon forward observer's main role. Um, I would have worked with that young NCO to make sure that assets were available. And they would have, he would have had um, the ability, he probably had something. I can't remember exactly what, the, what comprised because they left midday of assault day. And as they moved, as they drove their hundreds of kilometers, he would have had access to um, multiple types of assets en route. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would have been his, under the under the general plan, under the company scheme of maneuver, that would have been his to talk with. And this is the, uh, the, the beautiful thing about fire support, that NCO and that second lieutenant, or first lieutenant in this case, that would have been their job, it would have been that NCO's job to make sure that he could shape that platoon maneuver like I was helping shape the company one. You've done your planning. 
the mission's been approved. Instead of going to the 101st, it comes to yeah. to Bravo Company, 2nd right. Ranger Battalion. What's going through your head as you're walking out to that helicopter? Right. So we were uh, we were alerted. We were brought up, brought awake a little earlier in the in the daylight than normal that day, and let when they let us know that we were going to get this mission and it needed to go. Um, so to your question, um, after we we brought our mission, we brought our mission planning forward, issued the orders, and conducted our rehearsal there. We were conducted a joint rehearsal with our aviators from uh, Task Force 160 there in Baghdad. And then we were, like you said, we're pretty close to loading up. And the, the helo assault was two pieces. We flew out of Baghdad, and then we hit a, far, a forward uh, arming and refueling point um, that was a uh, safe distance away from the objective. And then we flew in for the last push. So as we were loading up, um, what's going through my head is the, pre, is the schedule of fires because I had, I had designed it. And you know, and approved by the maneuver commander, but I had designed at H minus twenty, twenty minutes before we were to arrive on on site at this at this training camp, this all military target. We were going to drop six bombs, as I mentioned, and then and then the F-16s are, are immediately off, and then we had fifteen minutes of gunship. Uh, we had Spectre gunship that was going to work for fifteen minutes, acquiring targets and shooting. Um, with in, in delivering different caliber of ordnance, and then, f- then at H minus five, gunship was going to come off, and Little Birds uh, attack helicopters from 160s were, were going to come over the target, and continue to work, and they were going to be able to work even as we came in. So that's in my head, honestly, and having and making sure my equipment is is ready because as a fire supporter, if you can't talk, then you're no good. So is my equipment ready? And I'm thinking about the. I'm thinking about the maneuver, honestly, um, and then making sure that as I continue to think about the maneuver, my fire support plan keeps making sense. So, yeah, I was how, excited. How long were you in the helicopter en route? I think we were probably uh, probably half an hour to the FARP and maybe it was probably about half an hour from the FARP on the way in. So a, a couple of half an hour lifts, maybe. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly. As you're landing yeah. and you're hearing the H minus 20 and the bombs drop, and yeah. the H minus 15, and you've got the, the gunship orbiting, yeah. what interactions were you having with the company commander? So, to that point, as we left from the FARP and we're en route to the objective, and I'm watching the clock, uh, and we're looking west because we're flying at this point, we're flying you know, west towards Syria. This camp is in Iraq in that direction. And I was able to see the, I was able to see the flash. Not it was it wasn't loud because we were still so far away, but I was able to see the flash of the pre-assault fires going in, and I just remember you know just knowing that you're on and you're on schedule um, is pretty. It was a that was a pretty exciting feeling. With the way we loaded aircraft, we were in a in a MH47 uh, Chinook, so we would load first, and the Ranger, the platoon that we were flying with, so that we had. Um, we had team leaders and riflemen off the ramp first to fight off the ramp. Um, so as we're coming in and I'm continuing to monitor, um, I, I get the sense that pre-assault fires are, are on schedule, that the assets are coming in uh, as planned. And then as we come in, uh, the, the Chinook comes in to the landing zone. It's hot. We're, get, we're taking fire from inside the wadi. Um, and they flare and the ramp drops and we run off. 
Um, I actually, as, as, as funny as it sounds, I'm kind of a tall guy. I was, and as a fire supporter, you carry a lot of radios. So, and my company commander was just this little guy. And that was kind of a joke, the whole deployment. But I'm up off my knee. There's no seats in the aircraft, and we're, we're snap linked in. I'm up, I'm, I, I unsnapped early, you know, right on time, and I'm up moving, and my long whip antenna gets caught on something at the top of the Chinook. So I'm like, and the Chinook is like, needs to leave because it's taking fire, and it keeps flaring. So I finally get loose, and I run off the ramp, and then it takes off immediately, and these two blades just blow me over, and I fall down in the desert. And I'm just like, and then I collect myself, and I catch back up with the company commander, but it was, you know, it was one of those moments. That was my entry into this fight. But, um, it, and then we, and then we, we continued to, to pursue the, the tactical plan. Yeah. What was that tactical plan? So the tactical plan was the Hilo Assault Force came in on the east side of this wadi. Um, and they were in a, like, a, it can, like most canyons, there was a couple little feeder uh, draws that led into it. And you could see that, and, we, and, we, and the, the commander had analyzed that on imagery. And those would be those platoons way in. So essentially they would go into the larger canyon, turn away from each other, and clear. So they didn't have any... Um, they didn't have a a sort of lift and shift need because they came in and turned opposite directions. There were there was what looked like an encampment on the north end of this and a larger one on the south end of the wadi, and it kind of takes a snake bend. So there were different sub-objectives inside the larger objective. Um, so the, the rifle platoons would go in, turn away from each other, and uh, move out and eliminate everybody. This was an all-military target, so they would they would move into the into the canyon and and complete the uh, the assault on the objective, assault through, and then just like most times you when you arrive, you and then working on achieving the ability to call the objective clear, and then you can begin what comes next after that with the exploitation and the prep for exfil. If that, and then on the to the other platoon, the ground assault force was coming in from the other side of the main canyon. That was third platoon, and they uh, they came in and they had a um, they did have a mission inside of the main wadi as well. Um, I can't exactly remember how the geometry of that worked out. For me, it was important to know that they were coming in and where their positions were as we as we developed the fire support coordinating measures to make sure that the we wanted to be as permissive as possible for those little birds, so they could continue gun runs up and down the uh, up and down the uh, the wadi, as it turned out, which was very necessary, even after six JDAMs and fifteen minutes of gunship. The rifle platoons yeah. have split left and right. The ground assault force is there. The mortar position is now getting set up as well. Yeah. Where are you? We were outside the main wadi. The company commander set his command post up. Uh, on the high ground, we did later go into the wadi, but we didn't like, nor would we have wanted to tuck in right behind that platoon that was down there working. So we, we flew in, we got off, and, and we moved and set up a uh, we set up a company command post on the high ground, just outside of the main wadi. That's where I was. And is this a little ranger patrol base, or is this something a little bit more formal? No, it's smaller than a patrol base. It's really, uh, as it turns out, it's really like four guys. Uh, it's me and the company. Well, five. Me and the company commander, our our SOTAC, our Air Force uh, Tactical Controller, and then a co- and then the commander's RTO, and there may have been another another person or two. So you're talking about a little five man element. Um, we pulled up. We you know we were executing our own security, but the fight was in front of us, 
Um, and then the first sergeant and his element, my NCO, the fire support company, fire support NCO generally moves with the first sergeant. They had an alternate command post that was north of our position in second platoon's feeder um, draw. So we, we moved in with first platoon and set up above first platoon. First sergeant and his group were just north of us. And that's how we, that's where we you know, conducted command and control. And, my, and for myself, that's what, what I do during that portion is I'm understanding the geometry of the fight. Where is first platoon? I'm listening to the maneuver reports, and my, my Ford observers are talking to me about where they are so that we collectively know what the little birds can do and what they need to stop doing. Um, and the platoon FOs really have that fight at this point because they're talking to the little birds. They don't need to, they don't need to talk through me to get it. But I'm also understanding, as you mentioned, we set in a mortar firing point. Um, there were no planned mortar targets, but that was if we needed it, because you never just trust just the aviation assets. Um, so we were, I'm just thinking about all the different, the three platoons, where they are, and the assets that we're using, I'm listening. And then I'm letting the company commander know what I'm hearing on the fires net, because it's generally a source of good information. How did the battle play out? So the battle played out... Um, Largely the way that it was planned to play out. We moved in uh, with, uh, we moved in as planned. There wasn't uh, there wasn't a, a big moment where we got on the ground and it looked different than it did on the imagery. We fought, they, the platoons fought in the way they they were um, the way that they planned to fight in. Um, and as I mentioned, we were taking fire from the wadi on infill, uh, so there was there were continuing gunfights on the objective throughout um and there were the things the kind of things you learn out learn about after the fact there were some engagements where um i think the first platoon leader was able to the wadi was fairly steep and fairly deep and he was able to locate a i think it was an rpk a two-man rpk team that was manning their gun and firing and he was able to come at them from a different angle and neutral and kill both of those both of those fighters. So there was little fights like that going on, even as the platoons got into position to conduct the clearance. So we're receiving reports of this. We hear, and you hear it. You hear what's going on. Um, the the lone wound uh, that happened. Uh, we had a uh, Ranger um, Infantry team leader, Sergeant Matt Waters, was wounded with a direct hit of an RPG as his element got into the main wadi, and they came around the corner. Um, a one of the one of the foreign fighters that was on this objective had an R and they, w other RPGs had already been fired. I think there were reports of one of the little birds having an RPG hit it right in the nose, but it didn't explode. Um, so all of this, you know, in my mind is even even after all of the destruction that we the biggest things I could order up as a fire support officer, I ordered up and I got, and we still had this kind of fight on our hands. Uh, but back to Sergeant, Sergeant Waters is wounded. He takes an RPG uh, to the leg, and he loses his leg below the knee. Um, so he is he's severely wounded, and the Ranger medic saves his life on the spot. Um, that's part of First Platoon's fight in the south part of the Wadi, and Second Platoon is is continuing to prosecute their fight in the north part of the Wadi. And then subsequently, Third Platoon is called in. They had a mission in the Wadi. Um, but it was after, as I remember it now, as after first and second platoon had made their way to safer areas, so that the geometry worked out. Um, but while all this is going down, um, we, the company does take that that ranger wounded in action, 
and then that that battle drill and that that uh, sequence of events ensues. He is, like I said, he's dealt with uh, expertly by a ranger medic. Tourniquets put on. He's moved and carried by Skegco up out of this wadi, which is one of the reports from uh, from the. I mean, which is an extremely physical thing to do, um, which validated a lot of the the ranger physical assessment and, and, and things that, that rangers pride themselves on. He's brought and he's extracted uh, via task force uh, to the FARP, uh, to a fixed wing uh, medical asset. Um, and he, he um, again, he saved his life on the objective. He does end up, uh, he ends up coming out of country, but he's, he, he did survive, he survived the wound and, uh, and um, and was was subsequently medically retired, but has remained close to the to the community, and that's another great story there. As the fight's evolving, yeah, right, and you bring third platoon in, and second's doing its mission, and first is doing its mission. Did the company command post, and by extension, you move? We did. Later, we went down into the wadi to confirm some reports and make contact with the platoon leaders. And was that the company commander inserting himself at the point of friction, or as a consolidation type move? Uh, probably the former. Uh, more than the latter. We weren't going to consolidate in there because we were going to exfil. So mm-hmm. it was a raid. So we had an exfil plan. We went in, he went down in there to confirm. If, if you consider the reports from the objectives a point of friction, he was, we were going in. He was going in to confirm um, the situation on the ground. And we, and we, we moved into there was an area that we, where we thought a cache would be, and it was a cache, an enormous amount of munitions uh, on this site. And we did some, we did sensitive site exploitation to that extent before we exfilled. But that's the, I would say that's the reason he moved in. It wasn't to consolidate there. The platoons had done their jobs. They didn't need him in there, but he needed to understand as a commander what was the, what the situation on the ground was, yeah. As the battle evolved, you mentioned the, the pre-assault fires had worked like clockwork. Did you yeah. need to shift or adjust your conceptions or your, you know, plan of employment for the fires once you got on once you got on site largely no i mean we, we continued to work the little birds with with um terminal control they would see people moving they would help us see that there were people moving and trying to escape and then we would conduct a call for fire and they would report back the battle damage from this area so and we had the graphics laid out in such a way that when they reported things in places it was easy for us all to know what they were talking about these were the standard way of doing business um, so there were plenty of, there were plenty of things that only occurred because of the way that the fight unfolded, but that's the plan at that point. During that phase of the operation, we expect targets to present themselves in different areas. And then it's just a matter of having, having a fire supporter on the ground that understands where all of the friendly units are and can clear the, and can clear the, in this case, the AH-6 Little Birds, clear them hot to engage. So that continued to happen um, over the course of the, of the few hours that we were on the ground. As the battle's winding down, you as a fire supporter and an advisor to the company commander, what changed in your role in preparation for the extraction? Focus. So I remember thinking as we were getting a better sense of where we were um, and things were quiet, we were completely in control of this objective, I asked the mortars to register. We had a target plan for the mortars, so we fired it. Um, why? Because it's keeping people focused. Um, and there was a little piece of that exchange because I, I called over and, and essentially executed a registration mission with these mortars. Um, 
and they fired, and then I executed the next piece of it, and then they they fired, and they didn't fire enough. I can't ex- exactly remember the sequence, but I had to, I had to, on the net, I had to almost just do a little basic piece of training with my FOs and these mortars. Don't you remember? This is how a registration is done. Boom, 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 and it wasn't because that was important. It was just for me. It was because if we were going to do something, we were going to do it right, and and it, it made sense to register these mortars because um, a piece that I hadn't mentioned before: the mortars were with Third Platoon, the Ground Assault Force. They were staying until the next morning to hand this objective over to conventional forces. We were flying away, so the mortars were going to stay there, and they could have called in other assets if something got weird. But those mortars are going to stay there. Why not register them? And then when you're going to register them, why not do it right? And it, it wasn't done to the FM standard, so I did a little correcting on the net. Uh, and I remember, and it's not a credit to me, it's just that's just that's how artillery works, and there was a purpose for it. Um, and I remember my battalion fire support officer came to see me in Baghdad the next day, and he's like, that was an example of why you're the right person to be in this job, that registration and you correcting your guys because and again i'm not trying to give myself the credit but that's a community where folks can get pretty cavalier but it doesn't that's why the ranger regiment is such a beautiful thing because it is it is nothing more than an infantry formation they're just really good at it and we were nothing more than artillery support so we got to do it by the fm we just got to be really good at it instead of you know you can't let the idea creep in that you know we're going to do it this way because we're special you just do it the army way. You just do it the, the routine things really well. After the fight, what happens? So after the fight, we uh, on as scheduled, we called for exfil, and the task force aviation element, uh, as, as was part of the overall maneuver plan, was waiting at the FARP. We exfilled, um, exfilled back to Baghdad uh, International Airport, um, and began to recover. Uh, the next morning, as as I mentioned, third platoon was was their task was to stay on the objective and um, hand it over to conventional forces. So the 101st, I think in elements of the 101st, were beginning to show up the next day, and an Apache helicopter got shot down. It was, it was an escort uh, helicopter. They got shot down from somewhere in, from the, the town of Rawa was nearby. So there was, a, there was, somebody was able to keep a munition and get a shot off one of those Apaches. So there was a little fight there the next day. Um, to essentially there wasn't a fight against armed insurgents, but there was a helicopter that was shot down. And so the third platoon turned into a, essentially a quick reaction force where they secured that site um, and helped make sure, that, make sure that that pilot and that aircraft were handled correctly. So that was, that was a, a spinoff piece from our operation the next day. But for me and my part, I, we flew out, um, we flew back, and by the time we got back and were settling in, the sun was starting to come up. So we were we were back in the base, and like we had done so many nights, we were going through our the troop leading procedures for uh, for post operation. But it felt it felt different. That was a that was it, you know everyone realized that it was a not it was an important mission. So there was a little bit of folks coming around that were that weren't on the objective, um, giving us some congratulations, um, talking about what an important mission that it was. So that feels good. It's been 20 years now and, and a day right. since Operation yeah. Reindeer. How did the events of that day influence and shape your vision of fire support leadership yeah. or Army operations? 
Yeah, Tim, that's a great question. And and because I was I was reminded of this because I'm on the eve of my retirement and you think back over things that were formative. And this is one of the ones that jumps out. I hadn't thought about this particular op a lot. Um, but it's got an outsized impact on me as an officer. Not because I did something great, but because I believe I was part of something that was important. And the confidence that that gives, I think the confidence that that gave me uh, to uh, to operate and learn and lead without feeling like, because I'd been somewhere important and done something pretty intense and pretty effective, I think that was... Uh, that was formative for me just in the general sense of now I'm an officer that is that feels his worth is not uh, I don't I, I probably less so felt the need to prove myself um, because I think we all go through that too right and you're less effective when you're busy proving yourself um, and uh, so I think I think it's a piece of um, it's a piece and they all they all tie together the battalion commander at the time. And uh, I, I want to go to Fort Bragg after the captain's course. I had been seen to have done a good job in second range battalion, so I get the right kind of recommendation to get to Fort Bragg. And the things that I did there as a captain um, were rewarding. So, yeah, there are piece, there's that strand. But I think in general it gave me a kind of confidence and a kind of, um, a, you know, a, maybe a, a perspective that allowed me to, to appreciate what I was doing. Um, and feel fortunate to be able to have been able to do what I've done with the kind of people I've been able to serve with. And some total of that is it probably made me more likely to stay in the Army and keep serving and enjoy it while I was doing it. So um, it's fortuitous in that sense. Um, beyond the fact that we had, I do believe, and this is with reflection, I, don't, I haven't talked about this very much at all until this past week when I realized that some things have been written and some things were out there. Because we never knew what we could talk about, so we just kind of put it away. Um, but um, besides, you know, the fact that you do get a sense that that mission and those those men that were in there with those weapons were capable and prepared to go do to go kill soldiers. So if we stop some of that, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good feeling. Well, Josh, I want to thank you for for being here and talking about events of of two decades ago now as you approach the twilight of your Army career. (laughs) So thanks for being here on The Spear today. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.